Please open your Bibles to John chapter 7. You'll find the uh, notes this morning's message in the bulletin. You'll find a text on the back of the notes if you don't have a Bible. And we are continuing our study of John's gospel. Um, We're moving through it slowly. And we find ourselves in Jerusalem this morning for the Feast of Booths. We studied the Feast of Booths last week. It's a week-long celebration capped by an eighth day. And chapters 7 and chapter 8 focus on Jesus in the temple teaching and dialoguing with the Jews and the crowd. It's a time of tumult. What marks these two chapters is confusion and disputation and and a variety of opinions about Jesus. Um, In fact, chapters 7 and 8 really... The central issue of who is Jesus comes to the forefront. And old themes we've been looking at get reiterated. So, um, to give you a sub-breakdown, chapter 7, in particular, involves two speeches or two times of Jesus speaking and teaching. Um, We're we're beginning one of them this morning. We look at verse 14 of chapter 7, about the middle of the feast. Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. And that goes all the way through 36... And then in 37, no longer the middle, but now on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up. So Jesus speaks in the middle of the Feast of Booths. Jesus speaks on the eighth day, the great day, the Feast of Booths. And the pattern follows as well. Jesus speaks, and then there's some speculation or confusion. We see that starting in verse 25 for his first speech. Um, where the people speak and they speak openly and they, they discuss is this could this be him? And then there's a failed attempt at arresting Jesus that's made in in both instances. So Jesus, in the middle of the feast booth, gets up, he speaks. There's speculation by the crowd, confusion. There's a failed attempt to arrest him. And then that pattern gets repeated on the great day of the feast of booths. Um, So we're looking at that first speaking event in the middle of the feast of booths. And it'll take us two weeks to get through that, which is why this is John 7, 14 to 36, part 1. I'll be on vacation the next two Sundays, and in three Sundays, we'll pick this back up, Lord willing. I'd like to begin by reading John 7, 14 to 36. John 7, 14 to 36. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. 
Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus said to them, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? Where I am, you cannot come. Let's pray. Lord God, as our Lord declares the foundation of his teaching, defends his ministry and his teaching, we would not be like those Jews who scoff. We would not be like those Jews who reject him. But we recognize that we need to be taught by you if we are to be taught by him. We recognize that we, we confess we need our hearts changed to be willing and desirous to do your will if we would know your son. So we pray that you would do that work in our hearts, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that for those of us who do know you, that you would reveal more and more your glory and your word, that we might be transformed by one degree of glory into another, beholding it. In Jesus' name, amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Now this morning, as we study this text, we, we encounter something rather unusual in John's gospel. Not unusual in the gospels, but unusual in John's gospel. This is one of the rare occasions where our Lord Jesus is said to be doing public teaching in John. I know you can assume that, but really in John's gospel, if you think through it, Virtually all of his interactions and his teaching has actually been in response to things people say. He goes into the temple and he cleanses it. And then we get the challenge. What sign do you do? We get a discourse. Or Nicodemus comes to visit him at night. Or in chapter 4, he speaks to the nobleman's son. In chapter 5, we, we get a dialogue that's initiated because he heals the man on the Sabbath. And we do get a discourse, but he's speaking to his interlocutors. He's speaking to those who are trying to kill him. In other words, what we don't get in John's gospel, at least we don't get very much of, is Jesus' broad, general, public instruction, like, say, the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. This is one of the few occasions where Jesus is said to be publicly teaching. And what's interesting is we don't know what he was teaching. John's focus is the disputation and the conflict afterwards. John's focus, in other words, is on the warrant, the basis the foundation, the authority of Jesus' teaching. I think John assumes, because of his evident assumption that we're familiar with these events in numerous places, most recently he just referenced the disciples as the twelve, that he thinks we know much of Jesus' life and ministry. His focus again and again and again and again 
is on Jesus' foundational claim to authority, Jesus' deity, which then connects to his authority to speak as the new Moses and the new lawgiver. Jesus defends the authority of his teaching. And this morning, we're going to look at primarily two claims, two defenses Jesus makes. And first point is this. Jesus does not speak on his own authority. That's the central point of verses 14 to 19. Jesus does not speak on his own authority. He is not some self-appointed, self-aggrandized, self-important teacher. He's not that. Which is why the claim, I come from my father, my father has sent me. I only testify to what I see and what I know is so crucial because he is not somebody who's just very self-important and pleased with himself. He is a commissioned messenger. Jesus does not speak on his own authority. So even though chapter 7 and 8 form a unit while Jesus is in the temple celebrating the Feast of Booths, the themes we're discussing in chapter 7 and 8 haven't stopped from where we've gone before. You remember in chapter 6, what was the central issue? The authority of Jesus' teaching, specifically seen when you encounter Jesus' teaching that you find troubling or hard. Then what? His disciples grumbled, remember? This is a hard teaching. Who can listen to it? And they went away. And in contrast, Peter, speaking for the 11, says, where else should we go? You alone have the words of life, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. So the fundamental issue, what do you do with Jesus' words that you don't initially love? What then? Is he the prophet like Moses? Is he the one speaking for God? In which case, then, the problem is you. Understand that. If Jesus is who he claims he is, if he is the Son of God, if he is from heaven, if he is the new Moses, then when Jesus speaks and you and I don't like it, we need to conform and change. Some corruption, some perversion, some twisting in us is exposed. We must conform to his words. If he's not who he says he is, well, then we could, like we might with anyone else, pick and choose what we like. He won't allow that. Jesus insists it's all or nothing with him. That's the same thing we get going on here. So Jesus gets up at the middle of the feast and goes up to the temple to teach. Middle, maybe the third, fourth, fifth day. It doesn't have to be exact. Not the beginning, which is, again, confirming he doesn't heed his brother's example and their counsel. He doesn't go up in big pomp. He goes up secretly, covertly. He waits for the feast to be ongoing. Then he goes up to teach. He goes up to teach. And like I said, this is one of those rare places in John where Jesus is said to teach. There's here, it's 659, it's 820, and that's about it for speaking of Jesus teaching, just regularly, broadly teaching. And even here, we don't know what he taught. It's, it's fascinating. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple, began teaching. What about? We don't know. Although the other gospels may fill that in. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it this man has learning when he has never studied? And then what we pick up is the controversy after his teaching about the authority and basis for his teaching. That's what John's focus is. Don't miss that. This is all about warrant and authority and right to speak. Does Jesus have it or doesn't he? On what basis does he have it? That's, that's what's being challenged here the authority of Jesus to speak and teach. So he does this, I think, for two reasons. First, he waits to the middle of the feast to avoid the Jews who are seeking to kill him. We know in chapter 7, verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Why are they seeking to kill him? Turn back to chapter 5. We're going to pick up on the events of chapter 5 in our text this morning. Remember in chapter 5, 
I argued Jesus picks a fight with the Jews in Jerusalem, with the Pharisees. He intentionally heals a man on the Sabbath. He intentionally makes it clear who it was who did it. When the man doesn't know who he is, Jesus goes back and finds him and tells him his name. Because the first go around, the man didn't know who, who it was who had healed him. He escalates this conflict. The Jews, we read in verse 7, 16, this is why the Jews are persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And then he escalates it a fair bit further with what he says in verse 17. Jesus answered them, my father's working till now and I am working. And in their in response to their charge, and the reason I'm unpacking this is we're going to pick this up in the second half of our message this morning. The way the Jews reasoned was this. It is not lawful to work on the Sabbath. Whatever you just did in healing this man must be a work. It's powerful work. Therefore, you're a Sabbath breaker. That's the rationale. And they're persecuting him. Jesus' response to that charge is simple and profound. God the Father works on the Sabbath, and so do I. And they don't misunderstand. They get it. Read verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So the reason the Jews are trying to kill him is because they clearly heard him communicate. I have divine prerogatives and privileges. Whatever God the father does, I'm free to do. He upholds the universe on the Sabbath. I heal people on the Sabbath. What of it? We're going to re-enter that controversy here in chapter 7. So he waits to the middle of the feast to avoid the Jews who are seeking to kill him and to give them the words of life. That's where we left off in chapter 6. The great confession of Peter in chapter 6, verse 68. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And even though as we work through chapter 8, we're going to see most of those in Jerusalem, most of the Jews, they scoff, they do not believe, they say you have a demon. There is a remnant, there are some who believe. And Jesus is doggedly going after them because he said in John chapter 6, it's his Father's will that none that have been given to him will be lost, but all would come to him. And all would be raised up on the last day. Jesus' intent about his father's mission and his father's timing is seeking and pursuing the lost even in the face of hostility and persecution. He wasn't hiding back aloof out of fear. He is fearless. Rather, he is intent on his father's mission and timetable. So then what we get and what we're going to look at this morning is Jesus saying two things, making two defenses, and both are in response to the speech of the Jews or those who are there. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it this man is learning when he has never studied? So that's the foil to which Jesus responds. The Jews were amazed at his learning. The Greek literally, how does this man know his letters? Which is a, a euphemism or cultural colloquialism of saying he, how, he's not educated. He's not educated. See, Jesus had not studied under, nor does he cite the rabbis. We get some of this from the other Gospels as well, but Jesus, um, it's not unusual for a Jewish man to be literate. Now, some have tried to argue that, but we know from the Torah schools that the uh, Pharisees set up that most of the Jewish men, if, they, if, if most weren't literate, most could be. That, that, that's not so unusual. 
The real issue here is we know the rabbis cite each other. We know the rabbis wrote extensive courses of materials, Talmuds, and things like that. And Jesus doesn't quote them. Jesus doesn't cite them. You can think of modern equation might be in courts. Frequently, lawyers will reference past decisions as, as, as significant citations and precedents. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus doesn't do that. He's not the student of Gamaliel like Paul later will be. And they're astounded at his teaching because it's not like others. Where this is heading, in fact, if you look a little later in chapter 7, look at verse 46. Why do the men charged with arresting Jesus not arrest him? What answer do they give? Verse 46, no one ever spoke like this man. One of the things being emphasized here is the authority of Jesus' teaching. And we've seen some of that already we know that even that, that mark is stamped on those who spend time with him. In Acts 4.13, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. What also sets Jesus apart from the rabbis of his day is the authority with which he speaks. We've seen this already. Jesus spoke with authority. What's, what's the introductory formula Jesus uses, I think, 17 times in this gospel? Truly, truly, I say to you. Not truly, truly, it is written. Not truly, truly, the great rabbi so-and-so once said. Again and again, Jesus cites himself as the center of the authority. Truly, truly, I tell you. If I tell you about heavenly things and you do not believe, and so on. And so perhaps the Jews are wondering, is this man full of himself? Jesus' defense to their complaint, Jesus' defense to their astounding awe, confusion about him, indicates that's a valid question to raise. How how can Jesus righteously and rightly speak with such authority? He does. It's going to stun those sent to arrest him. No one ever spoke like this man. Jesus spoke with authority. And even today, if you watch YouTube or listen to other teachers, Oftentimes, when someone is overly dogmatic, overly confident, it can be a sign to run, isn't it? Especially in our culture where your truth, my truth, have you considered this perspective, is, is what's in vogue. Somebody just saying this is the way it is, is attention-grabbing and unique. So that then sets up Jesus, justifies the authority of his teaching. Jesus justifies the authority of his teaching. So what we get then in verses 16 to 19 is his answer. Why does he teach this way? With what authority does he teach? And so we're going to look at first that Jesus' teaching has a source. It's source. And the first thing to understand is his teaching is not his, but his father's. My teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. And again, this is why Jesus has made such a big deal out of insisting he is sent by the father. He did not come on his own. In other words, by the very defense Jesus makes, it becomes clear that if he had, if this were his idea, if he thought he would share his wisdom with other people, if he thought he was somebody, if he sent himself, they would be right in rejecting him. This is why he again and again and again insists, my father sent me. I did not come on my own authority. I cannot do anything on my own authority. Only what I see my father do, I can do. That's the, one of the fundamental claims Jesus is insisting upon. I come from God the Father. And that is the basis of his teaching. And that is why he can speak with such authority. My teaching is not my own, 
but him who sent me. D.A. Carson writes this. This is even a bigger claim than the prophets because all the prophets would make the same claim. Their teaching is from God. Listen to Carson. At one level, all the prophets who came before Jesus would have wanted to insist that their teaching was not their own but came from the one who sent them. In light of the earlier discussion, specifically the discussion in chapter 5, where Jesus tells, I see what I see my Father do, I do what I hear him say. Jesus claimed to direct access to the Father. In light of that, we must conclude that Jesus is claiming something rather more. Earlier prophets could thunder, thus says the Lord. But Jesus' words and deeds are so much at one with the Father's, not only because of his unqualified obedience, but also because he does everything the Father does, that Jesus and Jesus alone can legitimately and repeatedly use, preface his remarks with an authoritative, I tell you the truth. No, no prophet ever did that. The prophets would make it clear. Thus says the Lord, the Lord commissioned me with a message. But Jesus' declaration about who he is is I am one who does nothing but image the Father. I say nothing but what I hear my Father say. Therefore, I can just tell you I say. And if you believe and understand what I've said, you understand I'm speaking for God. I am God speaking. So Jesus makes it clear that even though he speaks in some sense with unprecedented authority, greater than the the teachings of the prophets before him, centering his teaching in himself, it is still not his own teaching, but his father's. And therefore, his teaching is valid. Therefore, his teaching is valid. Its source is not his, but his father's. Next, notice its promise. Its promise. This is one of my favorite promises in Scripture. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Now, you've heard me say before, God himself bears witness to his word. Or you could put it another way, the scripture is self-authenticating. God has not put upon you and me the task of defending his word. We, we can mount arguments. We can point to fulfilled prophecies. We can point to its enduring power, a long testimony of believers bearing witness to its value. But at the end of the day, God does not require us to do that. We need to herald the message, declare the message. He and his spirit ultimately will bear witness to his word. This is one of those passages that that is based upon. Look at this wonderful promise. If anyone's will is to do God's will, He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. Now, again, notice the implicit assumption. If Jesus were simply speaking on his own authority, I think it's clear he'd recognize you'd be completely correct in ignoring him. Jesus grants. That's a valid concern. If his interlocutors are wondering, is this this man self-made? Is he speaking on his own authority? Jesus is, by giving this argument, implicitly conceding the fact that if you were, He'd be illegitimate. He'd be bogus. In other words, Jesus is not saying, I'm, I'm a big deal. Trust me. He's, he's himself a faithful servant. And he gives this promise. If anyone's will is to do the Father's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking my authority. So point one, God himself authenticates his word. God himself authenticates his word. 
This is, again, nothing new in John's gospel. Look back in chapter 6, verse 45. John chapter 6, verse 45. Let's pick it up actually in verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught of God. And when we went through that, I was explaining that Jesus is telling how he draws. Not with some mystical force, but God draws people to Jesus by teaching them, by showing them truth, by confirming, by authenticating the message of the messenger. God himself authenticates his word. And this should give you great boldness. I think this is a timeless truth. I don't think this is simply for here. That when you evangelize, when you share your faith, you can allow God himself the task of confirming his word. What I'll frequently do is just, I'd really be interested in what you think. Read this text. I, I think it's the word of God. I'd love for you to read it and tell me what you think, see what conclusions you come to. Um, John MacArthur said that the lion, the, the word of God is like a lion. You don't need to defend the lion. You just let it out of its cage. It'll take care of itself. And, and it takes a great apologetic burden off of us. Not that there aren't some good defenses that can be made. Not that, not that, there, not that there aren't powerful testimonies to the authority of God's word of a good point to. But at the end of the day, God himself, his spirit will testify to his word that he has written. And, and you and I don't need to do that. We just need to open our mouths and speak. But notice the second part, who the promise is made to. There's a condition on the promise. God has not said everyone will know. Everyone will know. It's a certain type of person who will know. Point two, only those who desire and intend to obey will know. Only those who desire and intend to obey will know. God is making no promises to those who are still hedging their bets about what they will or won't do. You see, but God won't allow himself to be um, viewed and, and assessed is like an insect under a microscope pinned to a slide. He, he won't allow that. We saw that with Nicodemus. Nicodemus wants to come and size Jesus up. And Jesus' Jesus' response to Nicodemus is, Nick, what makes you think you'd know truth if you saw it? What makes you think you're a fit knower of truth? What makes you think you'd recognize it if you saw it? And, and he points out that Nicodemus needs to be born again before he can even see or enter the kingdom of God. No, no, no. Jesus isn't going to be sized up by the Messiah Evaluating Committee, you know, turning in the reports, you know, 7.3. No. There is a legitimate way to assess Jesus. He does invite legitimate assessment, but the qualification is you need to be committed to desiring to and intending to obey God's word. Now, what this is, means, it's wonderful. It means there are no Jews in Jerusalem who truly want to obey God, who mistake Jesus and miss him as their Messiah. It means there are zero such people. It's a wonderful promise. Every Jew in Jerusalem, everyone in Jesus' hearing, who truly wants to honor and obey God, God, if this is your Messiah, I'll follow him. Is this your Messiah? Is this him? So like John the Baptist sends from prison, is it you or should we look for another? If, if that's their state, Jesus promises they will know. Not sure how they'll know. They will know. And likewise today, what I'll challenge somebody if I'm, if I'm witnessing or sharing the gospel is, look, if you can get your heart to the point where you say, I will do whatever God would have me do, I just need to know, is this where I need to look or should I look someplace else? You will know. Jesus promises that. If you're, if you're committed, 
but what you get no promises for is the person who says, and I've talked to people like this, well, what does Jesus want me to do? I might do that. Let's consider it. What's Jesus' position on this matter? We should certainly consider that. Such person has no promises. While you want to keep for yourself the right to independently evaluate and sit in judgment on what Jesus says, you have nothing. Nothing. Simply say, Lord, what you would have me do, I will do. What would you have me do? Then you get a promise of understanding. But while you want to retain your own autonomy, while you want to retain your ability to pick and choose, you've got nothing. The promise is to those whose will is to do the work of God. And one more time, I'll quote Carson. Um, He insists that Jesus insists the question of his authority cannot ultimately be decided by the rigorous debating of procedure from rabbinical schools. There is a moral dimension involved. There's always a moral dimension involved in knowledge. People are not white lab-coped logicians simply sizing up the evidence neutrally, dispassionately. No, if the Bible is to be taken true, we have a bent and a bias. We're looking for truth like criminals are looking for the police. And there's a moral dimension. The point is, writes Carson, not that a seeker must attain to a certain God-approved level of ethics. It's not like, well, keep the law for two days and then you'll know. No, that's not the point. Um, the point is not that a seeker must attain a certain God-approved level of ethical achievement before venturing on to assess whether or not Jesus' teaching comes from God, but that a seeker must be fundamentally committed to doing God's will. This is a faith commitment. God's will is not simply to be thought about or assessed as if God were the object we may politely examine, dissect, and discuss, picking and choosing what we like of him. The faith commitment envisioned here, this moral choice is properly basic and renders impossible any attitude that would set us up as judge sitting over God and his word. End quote. That's entirely right. You, you can have confidence in sharing your faith with anyone that if, they can, if their heart is in a position where they want to obey God, then they will know then they will know. And that's the challenge. I, I frequently say, look, I'll be happy. And this, this is another way when people want to throw objections out about what about the dinosaurs or what about um, Cain's wife or what about whatever. And say, look, if I were to answer those questions to your satisfaction, I believe there are answers. If I were to do that, if you were to come to the belief that Jesus is who he says he is, what then? Would you bow your knee? Would you submit your life? Would you smash your idols? Would you repent of your sin? Because if you would, sure, let's go have this Bible study on Cain's wife, sure. Is this what's preventing you from surrendering your life and your will to King Jesus? I have yet to meet the person to whom the dinosaurs are the reason they won't bow the knee to King Jesus. I have yet to meet the person who will even try to pretend they are. No, as long as your heart is set on autonomy and self-rule, You'll be blinded. So anyway, let's, let's continue. There's so much that can be said here about apologetics and witnessing. But Jesus' point, as far as it relates to the Jews in Jerusalem, is this. If you truly want to honor and obey God, you'll know. 
You'll know whether I'm a self-authorized, self-important teacher or whether I am who I say I am. That's what Jesus says. But it's only a promise to those who will obey, who will obey. Next, we see the purpose of his teaching, his purpose. Verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. The one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. So one of the things that would distinguish Jesus from these would-be self-made teachers is that he is seeking the glory of another. Literally here, you're blank. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory. Jesus has already insisted in John chapter 5 he can do nothing from himself. We live in a day where what people want is be authentic, be the real you, speak your lived experience and your truth to us. And Jesus says the person who does such things seeks his own glory. I am not a source of truth. My lived experience is no sure foundation. There can be some value in relating that as we submit it to be interpreted by God's word, but so often people will speak of what they know and what they've experienced as if that is the unmovable rock to which you must conform. And Jesus says if he did that, he'd be seeking his own glory. And people that do that seek their own glory. Rather, he seeks the glory of the Father. He seeks the glory of another He who seeks the glory of the Father is true. Jesus is not trying to make much of himself directly. He is trying to make much of his Father. Now, the Father, in turn, is intending to make much of him. So there is a sense in which Jesus can say, glorify me as I have glorified you. But Jesus, first and foremost, is seeking to glorify his Father. He is not seeking his own glory. And therefore, his testimony is true. His teaching then finally brings up a rebuke. Brings up a rebuke. Um, has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? It's rebuke. They don't, and literally here, they don't do the law of Moses. That's important to connect because he's already linked. If anyone's desire is to do the will of God, he will know if this teaching's from God, which is why it then links in, but none of you actually do the law of Moses. That, that's the connection of thought. Which is to say, thus, they do not desire to do God's will. So Jesus says, look, if any of you truly want to do God's will, you'll know. But you guys don't do the will of God you already know. You guys have the law of Moses, and you don't do that. So I know you don't want to do the will of God. That, that's the connection of thought. And therefore, their desire to kill him is hypocritical. Their desire to kill him is hypocritical. The, the, the basis by which they want to kill him is the charge of blasphemy. The two basic charges that drive Jesus to the cross, at least that they state, is he makes himself out to be equal with God. He claims divine status, and he convicts them of their sin. Those are the two reasons they hate him. And legitimately, if Jesus were a false prophet, the law of Moses would call on them to put him to death. You got the reference there to Deuteronomy 18, where we can read about false prophets and what should be done with them in contrast to the prophet that God will raise up like Moses. But their desire to kill him is not, Jesus is saying, due to some love and concern for the law of Moses as if they're just really zealous about keeping the law. And the law says we've got to put false prophets to death. So 
because we love Moses and because we're committed to doing God's will, we must do this. That's what they're saying. That's what they're fronting as. That's what they're representing themselves to be doing. But Jesus is insisting, no, you're not. You don't, you don't do Moses and you don't want to do God's will and therefore you don't receive me. They're hypocritical. They are hypocritical. We've got to move on. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd's going to pick up on that. The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Which now moves to the second orb of Jesus' defense. First, he insists he's not teaching on his own authority. He's teaching what him who sent him told him to teach, that anyone whose desire is to do God's will will know the truth, but that these people are not right judges of him because they don't do Moses. They don't keep the law of Moses. But the crowd picks up, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. So that's going to bring in the Sabbath controversy. Jesus, point two, has not broken the Sabbath. Jesus has not broken the Sabbath. Now, Jesus' answer to this may not immediately make sense. They say, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you, which is, they're they're claiming, the crowd here accuses Jesus of demonic paranoia. The crowd accuses Jesus of demonic paranoia. Now, the accusation of having a demon or being demon-possessed is also going to be pretty common in these two chapters. They're going to bring it up again in 848, 852. It's going to come up again in chapter 10. They can't deny Jesus' powerful works. Even though he's done none here, the works he's done are so many and so varied, and these people coming from all over Israel for the Feast of Booths can testify to them. They, They have to resort to, okay, he's doing it by demonic power. He has a demon. And they're reading Jesus here as like, well, who's trying to kill you? Now, we know from last time he was in Jerusalem that they were trying to kill him. We know from 17.1 they're trying to kill him. But this crowd is confused. Now, maybe some of them don't recognize who he is. It's possible. But Jesus will answer them in a sort of roundabout way. Jesus will answer them. But they're, they're charged. You're a demon. You're paranoid. So point B, B, Jesus justifies his healing of the man by the pool. That's, that's how you've got to understand what he says next. He is ju- giving a justification or an explanation or defense of his healing the man by the pool. The reason why he's doing this roundabout way is, is to say, the reason they're trying to kill me is what I did last time I was here when I healed a man. And they claim I'm a Sabbath breaker and I'm not a Sabbath breaker. That, that's what Jesus is in effect saying. Jesus answered them, verse 21, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now he's describing the events of the first half of John 5. You remember, it's the Sabbath. Jesus picks out a man who'd been notoriously lame. He's been there for 36 years, lame. Everyone knew it so that when he healed it, no one could claim this was a setup. And then he tells the man to get up. He tells the man to pick up his mat. When the Jews are offended, he doesn't know who Jesus is. So Jesus finds him again to tell him so he can tell them who it is. So we can run to them and say it was Jesus. And then they can come to Jesus and then we can have our conflict. Well, Jesus is, is speaking about that. Now, what's fascinating here, and one of the reasons why I said back in chapter 5 Jesus is intentionally escalating, is the answer Jesus gives them there is different than the answer he gives here. They're both true. There's no deception. There's no dishonesty. Jesus could answer the charge, hey, you're breaking the Sabbath a number of ways. And the way he answered the charge in chapter 5 was pretty direct. My father works on the Sabbath, so I do. 
Here, he's going to answer along these lines. Did I really break the Sabbath? Really? That's, that's the answer he's giving here. So Jesus justifies his healing of the man by the pool. Jesus did one work at which they marveled, and it becomes clear that work is the healing of the man. It's recounted in 5, 1 to 16. And so Jesus' argument is pretty straightforward. Point number one, they recognize, or point two actually, but the first point is argument. They recognize hierarchy within the law of Moses. They recognize hierarchy within the law of Moses. That some laws take precedence over other laws. We, we recognize this in our own situation in our life as well. In our laws and courts in Iowa, there are certain things that are not lawful to do except in exceptional circumstances. Normally, a police officer would need some warrant to enter your home, but if you heard someone screaming for help, you could come in. There are exceptional circumstances of which some lower laws are set aside. And Jesus points to them the issue of circumcision and Sabbath keeping. And so he says to them, um, Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, which is to say, Moses you probably references the Mosaic Covenant. And, and circumcision predates the Mosaic Covenant. Circumcision was given to Abraham. Moses is 400 years later. But sure enough, the law of Moses legislates and, and dictates and, and governs circumcision. So fair enough. Moses gave you circumcision. Not that it's from Moses, but the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Because the law of Moses is very clear about what day someone is to be circumcised. Well, what if the eighth day is a Sabbath? What, what then? Which one takes precedence? You can picture the argument, well, we've got to wait one more day because we can't do it on the Sabbath. And, and Israel understood that, no, if, if the eighth day is also a Sabbath, circumcision takes precedence. You, 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 you complete the ceremony. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I have made a whole man's whole body well. So Jesus' argument is like this. If you recognize the sign of the covenant is so important that it trumps the Sabbath if you have to choose, if giving a man circumcision is greater of importance, you can recognize in the hierarchy of the laws that how much more important and how much more fitting is healing a whole man's body. So I'm not really breaking the Sabbath, am I? Jesus is saying. And, and the implication would be if he were, they'd have a legitimate complaint. Even though Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, even though ultimately he is, gonna, he is going to take the law of Moses and free us from it, he is here fulfilling our own righteousness, completing it perfectly. And if he were breaking the Sabbath, they'd have a legitimate complaint against him. He's not really. This is similar to his point with David eating the showbread and something greater than David's here. You recognize there are exceptional cases you guys all get that intuitively. So come on, don't, don't tell me I'm breaking the Sabbath because I healed a man's whole body. You guys get that? So he's answering the question. And the reason why I said he was picking a fight in chapter 5 is if he gave the Pharisees this answer in 5, they would not be trying to kill him. But they are trying to kill him because he made himself equal with God, which then I conclude he meant to do that. That was intentional. There's more than one answer he can give. Both are true. No, he's not really breaking the Sabbath. And it's also true, even if he were, He's God. He's God. So, making whole man's body well is greater still. Which brings us to point C. Jesus charges them to judge with righteous judgment. Not much time to speak here, but I'll be brief. If there's any verse the unbeliever, the worldlings today know, it's, it's got to be judge not, right? 
It's got to be the most well-known verse from the Sermon on the Mount. And yet even in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is not forbidding judgment. He's, he's, he's forbidding hypocritical judgment. If you finish that passage off, he says, first get the log out of your own eye, then you'll be able to see clearly, to see the speck in your brother's eye. Well, here's a passage where Jesus commands judgment. The issue is not judge or don't judge. It's righteous judgment, unrighteous judgment. That's the issue. I'd submit to you that you, you can't live your life without judging and evaluating and making conclusions. Just try it. You, you'll fail. There's no way. You're, you're rendering judgments and verdicts every second of every day of your life. You, you evaluated the chair you're sitting and you judged it as able to hold your weight. You, you, you make judgments everywhere. You assess things everywhere. The issue is not whether we do or don't judge. It's whether we do so righteously or unrighteously, according to God's word or not according to God's word. And what Jesus rebukes is do not judge by appearances. Do not judge by appearances. T- turn quickly to Isaiah 11. God's law has much to say about righteous judgment. But the temptation for us, especially when we think we're smart and wise, is to sort of size things up quickly with a look and a glance and say to yourself, I know what that is. I recognize that. Especially if you pat yourself on the back as having the gift of discernment. And Jesus says, don't do that. This is sadly precisely what Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter want you to do all the time. They'll give you some like clickbait. Can you believe what they said? And then they want you to just be outraged. And God's law would say, no, don't give an answer without hearing. It's folly and shame. One person's case seems right till another comes and examines him. I'm going to need the facts. I'm going to need the details before I could render any sort of righteous judgment. Isaiah 11, one of the marks of the Messiah when he comes would be exactly this attention to righteous detail. Look at verse, chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, a spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. No, the Messiah will be marked by this type of judgment. Not superficial. Not by appearances only. But righteous judgment which means positively judge only in keeping with God's word. Judge only in keeping with God's word. So Jesus invites evaluation. He is not saying simply take my word for who I am, but the evaluation he demands is biblical evaluation, evaluation from a faithful heart that wants to honor God. If you can do that, Jesus fully invites being sized up. He would be evaluated by those who want to honor and obey God and by those who do so with a biblical metric. He rejects the authority of anyone else to sit in judgment on him and size him up. Pastor Daniel and I, back in 2020, 
in the uh, in the wake of so the rioting and, and protesting that was going on that summer, did a series on justice, race, and the Bible. And the opening message was on this concept of righteous judgment and, and how to think through. If you're interested in that topic, you want to go further with it, I think I've posted that to Facebook earlier today. You can listen to that. I hope it'll be helpful. There'd be so much more we could say. But for our purposes this morning, Christ, as he's defending the authority of his teaching, invites the right type of evaluation and judgment. Do it biblically. Do it righteously. Do it according to the canons and and measurements of Scripture. Do it with a faithful heart. This is a wonderful promise. If you're sitting here today and you say, I want to be right with God. I want to be at peace with my Creator. But what I need to know is, is, has he revealed himself through Jesus or should I turn to Islam? Should I turn to Mormonism? Should I turn somewhere else? Lord, where would I go? If that's the state you've heard, God promises you'll know. God promises any friends or family members you have in that state, they will know. That if a person can say of their heart, I, I want to do what's right. I want to be reconciled with God. I want to do his will. I just don't know what it is. You'll know. And I challenge you to think through the testimonies of Scripture. Are there ever any times where God's people truly want to obey him, truly want to follow him, want to do what's pleasing to him, but oops, they they misunderstand the message? No. God's will for you is not some hidden Easter egg you've got to find. No, it's not the case that God's people ever want to honor and obey him, but mm, they just miss the message up. If, if, If you, rather than secretly searching out God's secret will. Work on your own heart and whether or not you can say what the Lord would have me do, I will do. If you can get to that position, whatever the Lord would have me to do, that by his grace, I will endeavor to do. You're in the sweet spot and you will know if this teaching is from God. Jesus invites you to come to him. He won't turn any away, but he only will be sought. He will only have those come to him who are taught by God who would do the will of the Father. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, give us hearts that want to do your will. Give us hearts that seek not autonomy, but obedience. And lead us in the way everlasting. Lord God, um, your word testifies to your son. Your spirit testifies to your son. His works testify to him. Lord, commit our hearts in obedience to him crucify in us any rogue desire to retain autonomous freedom. But let us be your slaves and servants, knowing you in fellowship with you, having life abundantly. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.